Brad Klein here for TurfNet Renovation Report. Our guest is uh, Nick Painovich, uh, superintendent at Eau Claire Golf and Country Club in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And I want to thank our sponsors for this conversation, the Andersons, Golf Preservations, and Capillary Bunkers. Nick, uh, middle of the golf season, what's it like out there in uh, the middle of basically West Central uh, Wisconsin? Um, you busy with what's the climate like? What are you dealing with right now? So we're, we're kind of in the midst of a drought right now. Uh, it's a moderate drought. I would say we haven't really reached that um, severe drought stage probably, but I, another week or two without any rain and we'll be for sure seeing that. Uh, so we're, we're feeling the pain a little bit. Anything that's not irrigated is showing drought stress right now. And we're spending plenty of time dragging holes right now. That's for sure. Um, you're basically the, the club in town, aren't you? You guys go back to the 1920s to a, uh, a real classic design by Tom Varden, Harry, Harry Varden's brother. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. The, so the club was founded in 1901. So it's a, wow. it's really pretty old. The, this is, we're kind of in the, in the center of, you know, what was the original lumber baron area, you know, where the woods were clear cut back in the early 1900s and, um, that those are lumber barons seem to want golf pretty early on in there as soon as they came to this area. So they established a club and it was moved about 20 years later. And that's when, uh, Barden and another architect, uh, that most probably aren't familiar with named Charles Romsdale, uh, we're working on the new course and that's the 18 old course we have now. Now you're, uh, just coming out of a, a substantial renovation. Can you describe the scope of it, uh, who you worked with and how that went down? And as I remember, cause I was out there visiting in, I think October, uh, there were golf balls flying on every other hole you weren't working on. Even some of the ones you were working on. <laughs> oh yeah. No. Yeah. We were, we never really closed we didn't have any temporary greens. So that was a little bit interesting to have a wide open golf schedule. And the, our membership was, uh, they were out there playing it. And, you know, in a way it was kind of interesting. And I think for our membership, we're in a pretty fiscally conservative area. Eau Claire is not a really big town. And for them to see what they're really getting for their money, you know, I think that was important for our membership. It was a little bit of a pain in the butt, obviously having balls flying all over the place. And, um, but I think in a way it was, it was, it was kind of nice for them to see how much work really went into this, this investment that they made. And, so the architect we worked with was uh, Kevin Norby of uh, uh, Norby Golf Design. Out of he's kind of the lead regional architect there in yeah. kind of upper Midwest. He's based out of the cities, and we're only about an hour and a half east of the Twin Cities. And then uh, Dunnick Golf Construction is also, of course, one of the bigger contractors, golf construction contractors, and they're based out of this out of the uh, Twin Cities as well. So we were fortunate to have two really great contractors to work with there now what was the uh initial impetus for the renovation and how did that evolve in the planning process yeah so i've been with the club since 2008 i was an assistant for a long time um and uh that i was promoted to superintendent in 2016 when my predecessor retired finally after being here for uh, almost 40 years and at the time uh it was late and it was early fall, September. And, uh, we had, uh, a greens meeting scheduled less than a week into my, into my, uh, myself, myself being hired as superintendent. And 
our fall audit, we call it that meeting is, is when we're actually really out on the course, walking the course, drive every single hole. A lot of it's looking at tree removal, which is a big part of our program and had been for a while already um, at that point. And there had already been a discussion about the bunkers and what are we going to do here? Or do we need new sand? And um, so that was kind of the direction it was headed in when I took over. <clears throat> and I posed the question to them with it, whether they were happy with the look and the shape, the design of the bunkers and, and uh, what, you know, whether they'd be interested in approaching an architect about a, a bunker renovation. And, and there was a lot of enthusiasm for that, it seemed like, and it's just kind of ran and the momentum really picked up after that initial conversation. So that's kind of how it all started. And then, of course, we approached Kevin Norby a few months later that following winter and uh, he came up with a master plan for us on our bunkers, but also encouraged us to look at our tees, which he described as kind of a mess, you know, uh, being a pretty old course, there weren't a lot of forward tees, a lot of, not a lot of tees period. You know, we only had a couple tees on almost every single hole and um, you know, he'd be putting in a lot more fairway bunkers out here. We, the previous design was kind of seeing that we'd only had three fairway bunkers and he was going to, and we were asking for a lot more strategy off the tee, which involved a lot more fairway bunkers. And uh, mm -hmm. so um, in order to bring a lot of those areas into play, we had to look at some forward tees and, and I encouraged that I, you know, uh, our membership is getting older. Uh, some of our membership is getting older. We've got a fairly young membership that's joined here in the last few years, but uh, we've got a lot of those baby boomers that are getting up there that have been with the club for 30, 40 years and you hate to lose them down the road because they just don't have a, they don't have a course that they can play, shoot, shoot even one par a day on. So, uh, so forward tees were an important part of the conversation. And um, so we ran with that too. So it ended up turning into basically a, a full master plan, fairways, approaches wider, tees, squaring up the fairways, just more of a classic overall look throughout the entire course. And uh, some of that would have involved uh, a little more, a lot more maintenance work in terms of just acreage. And how did you handle that? And how did you plan specifically? Did you anticipate, for example, exactly what your maintenance needs were going to be in that planning? Yeah, Kev, that was one thing I really enjoyed about working with Kevin was that he really took into consideration, um, you know, what what my maintenance restrictions are, and he was pretty realistic about it. We're not a big super high-end big budget course here i really only have about a dozen guys on my staff <clears throat> and um what, what's going to be reasonable for my maintenance here and uh um you know we sort of made a little bit of a trade-off on the bunkers our previous bunkers were big sand flash ovals and uh, of course every time we'd get a rain event we're pushing sand up six guys you know half a day pushing sand up bunker faces yeah. and and it was just a maintenance uh, hassle and just a just a sinkhole of money was getting thrown into these bunkers every year and uh, edging them and all of that. And uh, so we sort of had a what I call the maintenance um, trade off on our bunkers. The square footage of them went down to about half. So we went we have the same number of bunkers. We had 43 bunkers before we've got 44 now. But the square footage went from about. 70,000 square feet down to about 35,000 square feet. So our bunkers are a lot smaller. 
but we traded that out for flat bottom bunkers with just a tiny flash and grass faced bunkers and he made them pretty steep. So we're fly mowing bunker faces now. So a lot of that effort that was going to bunkers was, has been traded off into fly mowing faces. But what we found this year is, is that in the end, it was a major maintenance savings. We, we're, we're only raking bunkers a couple of times a week because of the sand quality is so much better. It's so much firmer. You know, we just kind of check them here and there uh, the other the other five days of the week and fix a bad rake job here and there, but a full rake only a couple days a week. So we're spending a lot less time in the bunkers than I had anticipated. But we and, did add a fair mm-hmm. amount of square footage to our fairways and yep. uh, our aprons. Um, but he was conscious of, of making sure that um, they were maintainable with triplex mowers or, you know, smaller fairway units. And, you know, uh, I think in the end, it's probably quicker to mow with a hundred inch mower than it is even with a riding uh, rough mower. So, uh, you know, the maintenance on roughs and, and fairways has been pretty negligible. But all of that was anticipated in terms of looking at the impact before you actually turned any dirt, wasn't it? So definitely. Yeah, that was important to us. We're kind of a sandbox here already. So we were pretty well draining. But what was happening with our previous bunkers is each of those washouts, those native sands were mixing with our bunker sands and each sand was unique. Each bunker was unique and how much was mixing. And so I recommended a liner, not necessarily for the drainage, but because uh, we were holding water in bunkers, but um, just to provide that buffer between our native soils and our bunker sand. Now, during the whole process, you went through, or the club went through, uh, something of a management uh, handover to Troon. Can you tell us about that? And how did, how did that work in terms of the planning for this uh, process going on at the same time? Yeah, we, you know, like, like I mentioned, we're kind of a middling club, I think, you know, if I'm, I'm realistic about what we are. We're not really, really super high-end golf, but we're, you know, not a bare-bones country club either. And our membership does, has pretty high-end expectations, as they should. For them, here in Little Eau Claire, Wisconsin, it's a lot of money that they invest here, and they expect a lot in return. Um, and we kind of turned into a revolving door of general managers. You know, we'd get really a, a few really good general managers that were kind of up-and-comers, and, and uh, they'd be here for a couple, three years, and they'd move on to a bigger and better club somewhere else. Or we'd end up with someone who just, it was over their head, you know, and then they got fired after two or three years. And so, for example, my predecessor had been here for 40 years. He'd had 14 different general managers. I've been here since 2008, and I've seen six different general managers in this time. So they were looking... Maybe you should become the general manager. Yeah, well, that got brought up a few times. I told him I know nothing about managing a restaurant. I don't want anything to do with it. So, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, I think they were just looking for some more consistency from the upper management. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so I understood it. Uh, you're always, it's always a little weird to be working for a company that's in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know what that is, 500 miles away from here, you know, but um Fifteen hundred, yeah. <laughs> Still relatively new, but um, it's been okay so far. And I, I think of the of the management companies, I've been pretty happy with with you and so far. It's been good. Yeah, well, good. And uh, the contractor you worked with, Dunnett Golf. How did that? Uh, we're in a still in a very very uh, hectic phase of 
uh, course renovation at every level. Uh, how did the contracting work there, the shapers, and how much, uh, the, what was the working relationship there? Uh, so we're fortunate. There's a few pretty good uh, golf construction companies up here. And uh, so we placed it out to bid with Dunnick and a couple other companies. Um, one of them was so busy, he they declined to bid. They were Their schedule was already full. And I'm sure a lot of guys that are going looking at renovation right now are probably running into that. Um, the other one just didn't travel probably well enough. We were just far enough away from their market where it would have been a pretty, pretty high price tag to get them in here. And Donick, Donick uh, had a very good reputation. And um, so they were awarded the bid, uh, you know, a few, few months. Uh, I'd say it was April probably. So about six months before the project started, which, uh, uh, you know, is probably hard to do right now. And I, it, we kind of made an informal agreement with Dunnick in a way back in December, like a few months before, and said, look, you're, you're the lowest bid. We're, we're almost definitely going to do this project. And it, it was a weird time too, with COVID going on, you know, how do you have a town hall meetings with your membership and go and hear the voice of the entire membership when you can't get together in a room and really talk about it. So we ended up doing a big zoom town hall meeting basically with our membership and in February and um, the, did a survey uh, whether they wanted to move forward with it. And a vast majority of the membership was willing to fund it and move forward with the project. And shortly thereafter, we signed an agreement with Dunnick. Uh, how did you fund it? Uh, what'd you say? 1.1 million, which is 1. Uh, 1. by yeah. golf standards, not a lot, but by Oak no. standards, it's a lot. So. Well, and I think, yeah, it is. It was, a bi- it's a big deal for us here. This is the biggest project that has been undertaken at this club since it was founded probably since you know 1918 it was a relatively untouched course there'd been a little bit of work done on a few holes back in the 60s and a couple holes in the early 2000s but this was for an entire the entire course this was a this was a big deal um so they're paying through paying for it through a, a, a monthly assessment 25 bucks a month per member is how they're is how they're funding it uh that's um that's a surcharge on hot dogs at a lot of places yeah, yeah it, it wasn't that big a deal but you know you'd be surprised at how sure. big of a deal it was to some people here you know that just felt like they were fine with the golf course the way it was and mm-hmm. and didn't want to have to pay anymore but. how did you go about explaining that to members about uh i assume you did some sort of um presentation with uh, Nor- kevin norby and uh, yep. what was the basis of the appeal that people need to be mindful of this stuff you know, we did that, of course, that town hall meeting and Kevin um, was at the meeting too. He Zoom called and he actually had COVID at, at that day. He had been diagnosed, uh, tested positive for COVID, but he was a trooper and hung in there and he was on the co- on the call. And um, he speaks very well in those sort of settings to membership and and, you know, some of the negativity that towards the project that was coming. And he sensed you know, that some of that may be coming. It wasn't a lot, you know, but there were a few loud voices that really didn't want to do the project and didn't want it to pay anymore. In the end, there's still members here. They still, they pay their money and they, you know, I'm hearing positive feedback from even those few, but, um, you know, uh, I think uh, we did a, we did a, a brochure too. Uh, I, I told, spoke with uh, a couple regional superintendents on what, 
really got some of their bigger projects going. There have been several big projects in the cities, regrassings and that. And, and our project had been kind of stalled out. We started talking about it five years before, and it hadn't really gone anywhere for four mm-hmm. years and yeah. really just took off after COVID. And uh, um, I talked to Jeff Johnson, and I asked him. At, at, at Minicata. At Minicata, right. Mm-hmm. And he did a regrass. And I went out there, and we looked at his project. And and he, uh, and he I asked him point blank, you know, how did you even get this done? You know, I mean, how what was, what were the steps that were involved in, in just getting this off the ground? Because we're kind of just stalled out right now. And he said he had a, a member that was, uh, uh, had a marketing business and he basically just ran with it. So he, having a marketing, big marketing guru in the twin cities, take off a project for you is probably what it takes. We didn't have that here in Eau Claire, but, uh, my green chairman is a WSGA, uh, Wisconsin state golf association official. And, sees a lot of golf courses. He's a retired orthopedic surgeon and very enthusiastic person and very popular with the membership. And mm-hmm. um, he, it, without him and his enthusiasm for the project and the way he just kind of forced it down my membership's throat, it would have gone nowhere. So I think that's one thing you could really take away from us is, you know, a superintendent can really in some ways only take it so far that, you know, it's easy for us to spend their money for them. But when you got a really enthusiastic member, you can just piggyback them somehow and find, get their enthusiasm with the project. That's, that's a great way to get it going. Yeah. Well, it's always an interesting issue. And was there um, maybe more resentment or um, reluctance on the part of senior members? Were they afraid of losing? I mean, I guess it helped that you didn't shut down. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that was a big caveat is that we just weren't going to be able to shut down. You know, we, we're, Eau Claire kind of sits on an island too. We're not like this, you know, some of those big clubs in the cities or any of the private clubs in the cities where we can just reciprocity our membership elsewhere, right? We're on an island. I mean, we're an hour and a half, two hours from any decent sized city here. And we just don't have anywhere to really take our members. So being closed wasn't even an option for us. Great. Um, we're going to take a break here. Our guest is uh, Nick Painovich from uh, Eau Claire Golf and Country Club in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And uh, on behalf of our sponsors here at TurfNet Renovation Report, uh, the Andersons Golf Preservations and Capillary Bunkers, uh, we'll be right back. From fairway and greens drainage to full-scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease, and give you the peace of mind of knowing the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit golfpreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project. Introducing Genesis RX, a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for airification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging, and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced, offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. 
To learn more, visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash turf. The capillary bunker system keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts, soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms, but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand through capillary action as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a three-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com. Uh, Brad Klein here for uh, TurfNet Renovation Report. Our guest is Nick Painovich, superintendent at Eau Claire Golf and Country Club in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And uh, again, want to thank our sponsors for this conversation, the Andersons, Preservations, and... Um, capillary bunkers uh nick uh you're in wisconsin but you're sort of not quite wisconsin out there try to convey to some folks uh looking on a map how what remote uh golf island you are yeah we we sit pretty far we're about three hours from madison uh northwest of madison and four four and a half hours from milwaukee but we're only about an hour and a half from the Twin Cities market. So we're sort of that outer fringe of the Twin Cities market. Almost all of my vendors come from the Twin Cities. I rarely get anyone from Wisconsin to come up and visit. I got one, basically one vendor that comes from Wisconsin. Everybody else is coming out of the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then I'm a U of M graduate. So uh, um, I'm from Wisconsin. This this area of Wisconsin, near Eau Claire, and a little town called Durand, a little farming town south of Eau Claire. Um, and my predecessor, who was here for 40 years, was a Minnesota graduate. So it's so we've always kind of had these ties a little bit closer with the Minnesota chapter than Wisconsin. We're a member of both, but uh, we're, we're a little bit on an island up here. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking here on a map as we're speaking on Google Earth, and uh, you're also a long way from Sand Valley, aren't you? Yeah, we're probably two hours from Wisconsin Rapids, that area. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what's the golf market been like there for you the last few years? Uh, you've seen obviously uh, some changes, I assume a resurgence during COVID. Has it stabilized now for you? Yeah, it has. I, it isn't like the COVID year uh, or two there really. It's backed off a little bit. Our membership is growing though. It's been more of a trickle than just a flood, like a lot of places, I would say, you know, I think we've only got so many people in this market that really yeah. can afford the membership and enjoy playing golf and want to spend that much money on their membership playing golf. And so it's been a trickle, but you know, Claire's got a, a growing business, you know, it's, it's growing at a slower pace, but it's definitely, there's been some growth. There's been some resurgence downtown. And so there's some young businesses, owners and that moving in and they've been trickling in the door. So we're, uh, there's been the discussion on how big to take our membership. And we've kind of always flatlined at like this 215 number, but we're approaching 250 here. So we're, we're up. And uh, that was a big part of this project too, was, was trying to encourage some of these new members and 
trying to leverage what I think we had, which is that we're a classic golden age golf course and there's nothing else like us around here. We're the only private club in town in the whole entire area. And uh, so if you want that experience, we're, we're the place to go. And, but there were a few little updates we needed, including bunkers and, and tees and fairways and encouraging more of that classic look. We have a, a, a pretty, well, you know, a large portion of the area plays golf. I mean, there are a lot of people in, in Eau Claire and the small rural communities around us that, that play golf, but uh, so there's a lot of golf public golf courses, but we're the only private club in town and we're the by far the oldest place in town. So we were trying to leverage that with this project and bring out a lot more of the classic features we have at the property. And one of the virtues, I noticed this when we drove in, is uh, you're actually very close to downtown, but you're sitting also, what's, what's the name of that river that the uh, Fifth Green is perched on? The Fifth there? Green's on the Eau Claire River, and, uh, but there's a creek that runs right through the middle of the course called Otter Creek that runs right through the interior. And, and, but you're very close to downtown as well. So that's a big advantage. Yeah. We're, we're just a few minutes from downtown Eau Claire. Yeah. And you wouldn't know it, which is kind of a unique feature of the course. When you're, you're sitting down in this little river Valley, the Eau Claire river Valley, you wouldn't have a clue. You're sitting in the middle of town. And, and that's one of the neatest things about the place, I think, is that we're sitting down in this hole, this Valley and, you know, we're prone to some flooding, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unique. You wouldn't know you're in the heart of town when you're, when you're here. What's the, uh, what, what are the, what's the biggest appeal to, for a place like that? You're, you're not a luxurious resort. You're not uh, whistling straights and all that, but uh, what is it that people, I mean, I think sometimes a course like yours or a club like yours gets overlooked in a lot of the discussions in terms of where the actual game really is on a day-to-day basis in the United States, but you're sort of a model for that in many ways, aren't you? And, you know, you have yeah. walking, you have pull carts, I gather. Oh yeah. We, we don't have a caddy program or anything like that. I mean, we, you know, but a lot of our membership walks, um, and it's, you know, uh, you know, um, health, I think is pretty important to our membership too. So a big portion of them walk the course, although it is a pretty hilly climb up and down from our clubhouse down to the bottom, the river, the river Valley. So a big portion of our membership does walk, I would say at least 50% Hmm. walk on a daily basis. And there's been discussions of a caddy program, but that, you know, I just don't think that, that I don't, I don't really ever see it happening, but you know, I don't know. I, I think, you know, it's, I think it's a really unique property, just the, the way the river kind of carved it out. It's uh, there's, we've kind of built into like these terraces. I describe it, you know, the clubhouse sits on this tall terrace on the Ridge up on top. And then there's yeah. a second terrace and the way he uh, Varden kind of shaped us into those terraces is, is really nice and there's sort of a third terrace down at the, at the belly of the of the right. creek and it's just a really unique feature we I, I interned at interlock and country club up in the twin cities and uh we have a you know a fair number of golfers that have come and played here that have played there and we oftentimes get compared to that and there's a, seems to be a lot of similarities i always felt it of course but um you know i've heard that comparison a lot uh, even though we're probably a, you know, a tenth of the membership cost that interlocking is, but yeah. Well, other than yeah, it's, it's a little unfortunate. Unfor- you know, Bobby Jones didn't win the, uh, the yeah. U.S. Open there. Yeah, uh, funny story. Uh, there's a there's a plate out on the ninth fairway which played as the 18th for that Open, and I actually put that plate in when I interned there, so I got a little bit of history that I left behind there, I guess. 
even though Bobby, of course, hit the shot. I at least that's, that's the one the that's that's the one that skipped across the pond, right? The lily pad shot, right? Yeah. He so Bobby Jones won the third leg, the third leg, or he won either way. He won his U.S. Open there when he won his Grand Slam in 1930. In, yeah. in 1930, and he skipped the ball on the 18th hole across the pond, just kind of sculled it right across the pond and skipped up onto the green, and he holed out and won his U.S. Open, and so it's but kind of famous for that. For that that shot, the lily pad shot, they call also, it. Also, uh, Annika Sorenstam holed out for an eagle in the women's open there a few years ago. Oh, did she? Yeah, yeah. no way. Yeah, without without benefit of water though. Yeah, right. Well, it's nice having that sort of history, but I know what you mean in terms of the uh, the, the the Eau Claire has a beautiful flow to it, where you essentially descend into the valley, climb up to the river, the Eau Claire River on five and six, which. I just was fascinated by uh, at that point where the the fifth green is sort of on a promontory yep. and me being a guy who thinks trees are overplayed. I thought yeah. a couple of tree clearings. I hope you did them. Uh, we did them. That, yeah, we did yeah, them. Open up that view of the bridge. And then you come back up down the valley and then back up. And so you're really circulating. So it's actually a very, um, it, it's not a modest walk, but it's a, 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 an invigorating one where you really get to experience the landform from a variety of platforms. And you mentioned tree removal. That's been a big part of a, a, a program, I guess you would say, in the last. We started cutting trees when I was here in 2013, and we've been cutting ever since. And um, we haven't really had the budget to bring a big tree removal company in. So we were kind of forced to do a lot of this in-house. So in-house, since 2013, we've removed almost 3,000 trees in-house in the last nine, 10 years. So we're removing a lot of trees every winter. We're averaging over 300 trees a winter just in-house. We also had a, we've had a logger come in and do two hillsides, which I couldn't do with just my skid steer and a dump up to a small right. dump truck. And, uh, and in return, we of course sold the logs, paid for his services and received, you know, $5,000 check one year and $3,000 check the other year. So so that's been a big part of our program here is removing trees and really showing off those terraces and those long views you get from the tops where those terraces are, where they fall off. See those awesome views when you look out over the entire property. It's 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 pretty dramatic from set by the clubhouse. What's the uh, internal process for decision making on that? Uh, and what's been the response by the membership? They've been really supportive of it. You know, I mean, we went from a ultra tree lined golf course parkland all the way to you know we're definitely not oakmont or anything there's still a lot of trees here uh yeah and but the trees that are left you know we just kind of picked out the one tree out of 10 that was still a nice looking tree and removed the nine around it so and you know with as tightly bunched as they were you're still not out of the trees you know you hit you miss a fairway by a little bit you still got a tree big oak tree or a really big silver maple to try to maneuver so it's it's uh but it's really opened up those views and they've been really supportive of that and and i've i've spoken to quite a few uh you know members at other clubs that have asked to speak with our superintendent or have had their superintendent reach out to me and ask how the process went and how they got the conversation started because they really wanted to, they saw, used us as an example. So, um, but the process has kind of been this September audit. We just kind of stepped back with a lot of ribbon and started selecting the one tree we wanted to keep in there. Ribbon did and said, all right, let's cut everything else around it. So, and, uh, but they've been really supportive of, of it so far. Kevin was a big help too with his master plan. He had some significant tree removals too. And, 
a lot of almost all of his suggestions have been done. I think there's maybe one tree left that's just sort of a controversial tree. And uh, but I bet you that thing will be gone gone here in the next few years, too. We've got we've been dealing with a fair amount of oak wilt here, though, too. So that's sort of uh, made the decision for us that we've had to do some tree removal just because of how closely they were planted, of course, spreading by uh, root grafts. We were basically having to remove everything in, in a, you know, a big circled area where, where when, we, when we would have one tree with oak wilt. So, so that kind of helped move things along. That was a big part of the reason we brought the logger in because we had a fair amount of oak wilt in the, in the, in the uh, fringes of the course on some of those really steep hillsides. And, mm-hmm. and so that was important part of the process was bringing this logger in just to help us with that because that was a significant amount of, of removal there. And what's been the effect on turf quality? Oh, there, no question. It's so much better. I mean, we, we've got a fair amount of POA, uh, especially then. But since 2013, since we've been cutting, it's been a significant decline in, in the amount of POA we've got on greens. And the roughs are thicker, of course, and higher quality, a lot more Kentucky bluegrass and just getting some sun on that. I mean, you can't grow grass in a closet. So just opening it all up has, uh, has helped a lot. Yeah. And did the members notice that as well? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You miss You miss, I mean, that, that, that's a big part of the talk is, yeah, we've removed all these trees, but the roughs are so much thicker, you know, it, it's definitely not an easier course. So that can't even be a conversation. Um, I'm sorry. What do you mean? It can't be a conversation. It can't even be a conversation that um, by removing trees, the course is going to get easier. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Right. So it allows you actually, and you're, you're down because you're down in the valley and the high side is in, in essentially, I'm looking here on the map here, it's sort of on the east side as well. So, yeah. you had a, so you were losing a lot of morning sunlight, weren't you? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and it's a struggle even in the, in the spring, you know, when we're trying to get going, there's public courses in town that open up two to three weeks before us because we sit in this hole. Right. The snow cover just sticks around for two to three weeks and they're opening up and we're not, we still are three quarters covered in snow and not even considering it at this point, you know? So it's, uh, we're always lagging way behind in the spring, especially because of the way we sit in this hole. And just like you said, we, we were missing out on a lot of morning sun and then you threw all those trees in on top of it. It was just a polo farm. You know, when I got here in 2008, there was so much polo. It was ridiculous. And winter, so many histories of winter kill repeated over and over and over again and just not seeing any recovery. And so that's been a big part of our program is getting after that pole. We're spraying a lot of plant growth regulators still. I know a lot of guys have kind of given up on their trim it throughout the years, but we're still hammering away with trim it, uh, really high rates, trying to knock back pole and encourage more bent grass. And we also had a really bad winter kill in 2019, like a lot of the courses up here in the upper Midwest. We basically lost all of the polo on our greens. We lost most of the polo in the low spots in our fairways from ice. And so we lost about 10 acres of fairways. So starting over, we got pretty good. We started off over on our greens and redid all these low spots in our fairways. And we got really good germination, pretty good recovery. So we flipped from a 50-50 bent polo to more like a 75-25 bent grass to polo and fairways as well. So it really kind of helped us jumpstart this, this pole removal program and trees, of course, being a big part of that too. 
And you couldn't have done that without the tree uh, removal to get enough sunlight because obviously. No, it probably we wouldn't have got more. the germination. I mean, you can even see, you can still see in a lot of those spots where there was a big maple tree still too close to the green. The germination from that recovery just wasn't as good. There still isn't as much bent grass in those areas as there was. Mm-hmm. It just didn't take off like it did in the open sun areas. So, um, yeah. And finally, um, what's the labor recruitment market been like for you in terms of getting help? You know, I, you know, I started really hearing about it, you know, probably four or five years ago, hearing rumblings of guys really having a hard time finding help. And I, I think we were a little later to that. I think, you know, we're in a farming community here and we've also got two colleges in town. So I, I had a pretty good um uh, base to, to kind of pick from, I think, you know, but I'm feeling it here now in the last couple of years for sure. And I've gone, it's been really hard finding good college aged help. And I've kind of gone to more retired guys. So if, if there's a mower, it's probably going to be someone that's a retired age employee that's on it. And the few college kids that I have or college age, high school age kids that I have are pretty much standing over a weed whipper dragging a fly mower around this summer they hate me but um it's it's kind of forced my hand here i didn't really have a choice i just not even really getting applicants or the ones i'm getting these college age high school kids didn't want to work 40 hours they might say they want to but they were only working 30 and i started to see that in the last couple of years and and uh so we've just gone to more retired age guys and there's you know plenty of those baby boomers i mean they're awesome they they beat me to work a lot of days they're sitting in the parking lot waiting for me to drive in and unlock the doors and open the window or turn the lights on for them and they're grumbling and giving me crap for showing up late you know or whatever you know late and i'm i'm a half an hour early so it's uh but you can't beat them i mean they're the best and they're so reliable but um so we've kind of managed it that way i guess so I'm I'm feeling it for sure, and I, and I don't know how it's going to get better. Uh, it's been a tough issue. It might be so desperate you have to hire guys from Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, huh? For an yeah, right. For, yeah, uh, from Madison. Uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting. Uh, you're in a between the farm market and the retirees. Uh, I suspect, actually, in fact, some of the retirees are drawing checks from previous work so that whatever yeah. you're paying them isn't what they have to live on so it's no no and no they wouldn't be able to live on what we, we pay them here you know i mean it's it's sad but it it's kind of the reality of our budget here is kind of a middling club i can't pay them a ton and uh it, but it's gone up a lot i mean you know what we were paying college age kids 10 bucks an hour a few years ago is is now 13 14 bucks an hour starting uh you know and uh and that that's hits the labor budget. So our staff isn't as big as it was a lot yeah. of part-time help. I mean, my board is, I got the, you know, schedules on the board and it's just a mess. Cause I got, you know, this guy's in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, this guy's in Tuesday, Thursday until 10 o'clock and then he's gone. And then, yeah. you know, it's just, it's all over the place trying to sort out who's going to be here every day, but, but we're managing and uh, I've got, I've got two really good assistants that make it easy for me. And I got, We've got one pretty good college here in town that that is uh, that has a turf program called Chippewa Valley Technical College, and I usually pick off an intern or two. I I uh, was the adjunct professor there 
uh, adjunct instructor for, for what, six years. Oh, so my kids got too busy with sports and stuff that I finally found my replacement so I could retire from teaching. So I know the program director really well, and I can usually steal an intern or two every year. And, and those guys have always been great. They usually kind of come from the farming community. Like I did, I grew up on a farm around working on farms around here and can usually relate to them really well. So it's, uh, it's been fortunate still, I think more so than some people, but, uh, it's still not easy. That's for sure. You got to get creative. Yeah. Well, uh, Nick Panovich, Eau Claire Golf and Country Club. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. I look forward to getting back out there to play golf. And um, um, on behalf of the TurfNet Renovation Report and our sponsors, the Andersons Golf Preservations and Capillary Bunkers, uh, I want to thank you for your time. And um, good luck. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Brad. It was great talking to you, man. Oh, it's a real honor. It's a real honor. Nick. Take Thank you. Care.